Our Father, the, the psalmist said, how great is your goodness, which you store up for those who fear you. And the fact of the matter is, we are recipients of your goodness every day. Um, I think of 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you have not received? And when we stop and think about it, everything we have comes from you. Our ability to breathe, our ability to think, our ability to get out of bed and function and uh, go to work, uh, to interact with people. Um, that's a gift. The, uh, the ability to, to earn a living. Well, all of this is a gift, Lord, and we have to be very careful because this, this long race, which we call the Christian life, there are times it is hard, it's difficult. There are times that it's, it's disappointing. We get blindsided. It, there are times in the race where we experience loss and affliction. And if we are not careful, we can easily lose our perspective and forget. Well, we can get overwhelmed by the, by the adversity. And we can forget how much we have been given. Uh, help us to shift our thinking if we have wandered into wrong territory there. We don't want to be grumblers and complainers like Israel in the wilderness. We've been given so much. Your mercies are new every morning. Your grace astonishes us. In fact, it, at times we just wonder if it can even be true. It's so good. But it is. It's true. Um, it's true. Yeah, your, your faithfulness never deviates. Your affections never change. Your commitment to us. We are thankful that we know Christ and the gospel and that our sins are forgiven and we're following the shepherd. We have guys that are dealing with different things different pressures, different issues. Nobody is exempt. Everybody's dealing with some kind of pain or disappointment or heartache or fear. And this is why we need you. And this is why we need your word. To steer us, to navigate us, to remind us of what's true, to remind us of your promises. We are living in, to borrow Martin Lloyd-Jones' phrase, we're living in days of exceptional evil. As men, as fathers, as grandfathers, we need your wisdom to live in a world that is getting increasingly darker. But we thank you that Jesus rules and reigns over it. And that it's all under his sovereignty and under his control. And that you have a plan that has been fixed from before the creation of the world. And you are working your plan and it's on schedule to the nanosecond. Encourage us. And, and not only encourage us, but tonight give us discernment and wisdom as we look into the scripture. Because 
We are living in evil days, and we need to be men who walk with discernment. That's our prayer tonight. And we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this semester we are studying the, uh, the concept of finishing strong. And maybe the foundational verse for our study would be Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and I just will quickly mention those are the men uh, mentioned in the previous chapter in Hebrews 11. Uh, men who finished the race and have gone on to be with the Lord. Uh, we're running our race. But men like Abraham and Moses and the others that are mentioned in there, uh, their stories are, are written for us in our instruction. Those are the witnesses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Um, so the, the, that metaphor of a race is used in different places in Scripture. Uh, we've made the point, and we want to continue to make it, that the Christian life is not a sprint. The Christian life is, is a marathon. It's, uh, well, they have ultra-marathons, the 100-mile races. Uh, it's more in line with a 100-mile race. And I, I've mentioned to you before the guy that I met um, in Little Rock who um, there were two guys in, in the church along with him, and their hobby was running ultramarathons. Not marathons, ultramarathons. And they did a little uh, booklet in the cover of the booklet, which told their stories, how they all got into this. Uh, the cover of the booklet really told the whole story because it was a picture of one of the guys in his Nikes after a 100-mile race. And uh, apparently they had started, when he bought them, they were white, but they looked like they had been tie-dyed in, in red from the blood. The tread was hanging like this. I mean, they looked like they had been through a shredder. That's what it's like to run 100 miles without stopping. That's the Christian life. Let us run with endurance. You don't need endurance for 100 meters. You don't need endurance for the 200 meters. That's why it's not unusual in those races to see a false start, because the, the speed is pretty much the same. The steroid level is pretty much the same. <laughs> and the only way you're going to get any kind of an edge is to anticipate the starter's gun. But you see, in a long, long race, you don't need speed and you don't need a great start. In fact, in a long, long race, how you start doesn't even, quite frankly, that's really not a big issue. If you've ever seen the, uh, yeah, you know, you've seen clips of the Boston Marathon or the New York City Marathon. I mean, thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands. What, what's, what's fascinating to me about those races, um, it, it proves the point. They're not really concerned about their start. In fact, only a handful of them are really at the starting line. Most of them are blocks away from, from the starting line. Is that not true? When you got 50, 60,000 guys in a race? I mean, you got guys 14 blocks away in a Starbucks getting lattes. <laughs> and they'll hear a boom. 
And the guy said, hey, that was, that was the starter's gun. No, no, that was a pickup backfiring. That's what that was. No, I think the race has started. Oh, okay. Well, make that latte to go, will you? <laughs> they don't care. It's a long race. You see? So we've said this over the last few weeks. In the Christian life, it's not so much how you start that counts. It's how you finish. That's the name of the game. We want to finish strong. But as we've looked, like, looked at over the last several weeks, just to kind of review here, um, when, you, when you look at, at men in the Scripture of whom we have enough biographical information about them to actually get a glimpse of their life, to see how they started and to see how they finished, uh, you find that... Um, I think it's safe to say that the majority of men in Scripture who start strong don't finish strong. It's, it's, it's quite a task to finish strong. Uh, some men uh, start strong but finish poorly. The classic example of that would be Solomon. No one had a greater start than Solomon. His, his dad, David, had set him all up uh, to, with all the materials to build the temple, um, he had, um, I think with the mistakes he had made with his other sons, I'm sure David really focused in on Solomon and, and really worked at connecting with him and preparing him for the work that he would do when David died. Um, he, uh, when, as a young man, the Lord appeared to him twice. Now, that's quite a start. He was very wise in his request of the Lord. He asked not for riches or this or this. He asked for wisdom. Man, what a great start. Tragically, he finished an idolater. Well, he built the temple in Jerusalem for the Lord. Yeah, he did. But towards the end of his life, he was building temples around Jerusalem for false gods. We'll see that in a minute. See, that's a, that's a poor finish. Or you can have a so-so finish, kind of an average finish. There are different guys in Scripture who started strong, but it seems as they got older, they just sort of, um, they lost some conviction. They, uh, there's a king in the Old Testament named Amaziah, and the verse, I can't even tell you the verse. Uh, Amaziah loved the Lord, but not with a whole heart. Isn't that something? You've got to watch your heart. And you don't watch your heart just at the start, you got to watch your heart every single day, you see. So Proverbs 4, guard your heart, for out of it flows the wellsprings of life. And what happens is you may run the race well for a while, but as the years go by and the years go by, you get sidetracked, you get distracted, you get fatigued, you get worn out. It's a tough race. I, I mentioned the guy... A friend was telling me of an acquaintance he had. Guy had been a spiritual leader in his church and in his family. And, but apparently, he and his wife had always had a difficult marriage, and they'd been married 30, 35 years. And a recent conversation, this guy said to my friend, uh, in fact, he filed for divorce. And he was asked, you know, do you have biblical grounds? No, I'm just tired. I'm just tired. I'm just tired. Well, 
Guys with Lou Gehrig's disease get tired of it, don't they? Guys with terminal cancer get tired of it. There are a lot of things we get tired of. Um, see, this is where you need endurance. And this is fascinating to me, because how do you get endurance? See, this is really interesting. How do you get endurance to have energy to keep running the race? And um, this is how you do it. You, you in James chapter 1, and, and this, this happens to me sometimes. I will pray before I come in here, and I'll ask the Lord to lead me. And then he does, and it's very disturbing to me, because I'm spending a little more time on something I was just going to gloss over. And, uh, but I, I feel like I need to say this tonight for some reason. I wanted to make the point that the Christian life is a long race and that it's easy to get fatigued and to get worn out and it's easy to lose heart. And as a result, some guys at midlife or after midlife who started strong and had had a pretty good track record 20, 30 years, they just have a so-so finish. Why? Because they kind of drop out of the race because they're just tired of the race. Well, hey, we, I've been married 30, 35 years, and this is really a tough marriage. I'm dropping out. Well, what about your kids? What about your grandkids? You see? Oh, I'm just out of gas. James 1, let's flip there real quick. I want to show you this. This is really important. <laughs> As I go to James 1, I'm going to tell you something. I'm cleaning out my office because... Um, Oh, I haven't done it in like three years. I got files. About every three years, I'll go through there and straighten it up. And uh, I just ran out of room and ran out of file space. And the uh, day before yesterday, I, 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 I do a lot of notes on legal pads. And, and I never use the entire legal pad for some reason. But, uh, so I got them everywhere. And I was going through all these legal pads that were semi-used, and I pulled one out, and I think the date was April 23rd, 2012. And I had, I, I had turned it, um, what do you call that? Not vertical, but horizontal. And what I was doing on one page, I was talking to the Lord, and I wrote down Psalm 42, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you cast down within me? Because I was. So I started making notes, and I was trying to summarize on one page why I was, why are you in despair on my soul? Because I was. And I, and I jotted things down, because I'm tired, because I'm worn out. Uh, I'm not sure how long I can keep this up, this travel. Um, um, we need to do this, we need to do this, and we need to do this, but I don't see that happening. Um, that, that, uh, um, I've had help here, and I've had help here, but it's going away. How is that going to be handled? That, it was just all condensed on a page. And it was April, what did I say, 23rd, 2012. And I remember writing that. I remember writing it. And I remember being so discouraged. I remember thinking, you know, I need, I need to lose 60 pounds. And, and in fact, I went in to, uh, 
get a full body scan. Just, I thought, you know, I haven't done that in 10 years. I better go in and see what's going on. And so I did. And, uh, and basically I was told, listen, uh, you're four times above high risk. Go see this cardiologist. I saw the cardiologist. He says, you don't need surgery, but you need to lose 60 pounds. I said, okay. I remember that very well. That was one reason I didn't have energy. Uh, I was on that bluebell diet, and I stuck to it faithfully. <laughs> but it was time to grow up. That was, in, that was in May, and then I also remember in May, just maybe three weeks, two weeks later, I had some guys come up to me just, and I've told you the story, I won't go into it. But I, and one of my problems was I was always, guys were saying, you need to get your stuff, well, how come I can't get your stuff online anywhere? You know, don't you do that study in Dallas on Wednesday night? Yeah, they record that? Yeah. What do you guys do with that? We put it in a file drawer. <laughs> well, we could listen to it. And some guys in Nebraska said, hey, we got, how come we can't listen? I, I don't know. I don't even know how you do it. Well, can't you put that online? I don't know how to put it online. Can't you hire somebody? I don't have any money to do that. And I don't raise money. I just remember that. And it would be constant. You need to get this online. You need to get this online. I mean, it was, I remember praying. You, I remember praying one morning, saying, you know, Lord, you've got you to keep these guys away from me because I cannot, I don't, I don't have, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this, and I don't have the funding, and apparently you don't want to do it, and that's fine. But I, would you stop the emails and the phone calls? I, I asked him that. And the next day, I was so discouraged. The next day, a guy walked up to me after the noon study, in fact, he didn't walk up to me. I walked past him with his buddy on the sidewalk, and he said, he said, is this, it was May, and he said, is this our last week before the summer break? And yeah, or it's next week. I can't remember what I said. We got one more week. And he said, hey, I, he said, hey Steve, how come I can't get your stuff online? <laughs> he said, I, my business, I'm in Europe all the time, and I can never find anything online. I said, yeah, yeah, I know. And he, and he started walking over to me. He said, why is that? And before I could say anything, he said, well, it's probably because you, you're not going to do it. You need staff to do it. Do you have the staff to do that? And I said, no. And he said, well, that's a funding issue. You need funding. I said, yeah, I was talking. He said, how much would that be? I said, well, I was talking to my brother-in-law about that yesterday. He said, how much do you think that would be? I said, I, well, my brother-in-law said 50,000, 60,000 to get it going. He said, Okay. I didn't know this guy's name. He's in a T-shirt, he's in shorts and flip-flops. He didn't look like he could write a check. <laughs> but he said, okay. And three or four days later, we had the check. And God started doing it. Now, the reason I'm telling you that, I'm so glad I found that horizontal sheet that I had written the other day. Because in the midst of clearing my office and doing all this stuff and all that, I looked at it and I went, I remember writing that. And I looked at the day and I went, huh. And I was just about out of gas. And I'm astonished. And, and you've got to understand my heart here. I say this only to give glory to God. I am astonished at how many guys in foreign countries are listening to this. And Two years ago, I didn't even have an eight-track player to do anything with. 
I'm amazed. But I was just about out of gas and completely demoralized and discouraged. So with that in mind, and, so, and see, here's what I'm thinking. There's probably somebody in here, and that's right where you are. And, and see, maybe you're just fatigued and discouraged and demoralized, demoralized. So let's go to James 1, if I can ever get there. And uh, it says... It says, consider it joy, my brethren. It doesn't say feel it as joy. It says consider it or think it as joy. Watch this. When you encounter various trials. Now, that's not our normal reaction. But watch this. Think it as joy. Consider it joy when you encounter various trials. Watch this. Knowing. There's your mind again. Knowing what? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. Is that counterintuitive or what? See, I'm thinking, I'm sick and tired of all these trials and adversity and difficulty and disappointment and all this stuff. See, what I want, I want you to take them away from me. I want your favor and I want your blessing. Think of joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfectly complete, lacking in nothing. Um, the guys that I met that ran the ultramarathons, I'm thinking of this one doctor, and I mentioned this. How can you run 100 miles every, every quarter? How can you run a 100-mile race every 90 days? Well, here's how. You get up at 4.30 and you run 20 miles before breakfast six days out of seven. That's called choosing adversity. That's called choosing pain. That's called choosing trials. Because he knows that there is a payoff on the other side, you see. Um, and, and it is true, uh, sometimes we get absolutely overwhelmed. Sometimes we've been running so long and we're so discouraged and we're so demoralized, we're just out of gas uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually. See, that would be Psalm 142.3. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, watch this, you knew my path. The Lord knows, the Lord knows the exact right moment to step in and deliver and help. He knows. So what do we do in the interim? You say, Steve, I think I'm there. Well, you may be there. You may not be there. What do you do? You trust him. And you keep following, and you keep obeying. And don't, listen, don't leave your post. Don't go AWOL. Don't go AWOL because of discouragement. As he assigned you to a place, as he assigned you to a post, then you remain at your post, and you stay faithful. You don't stay excited. You don't stay pumped up. You stay faithful. That means you show up when you don't feel like showing up. You just follow the shepherd. And don't think, I can't do this another two years. Jesus said each day has enough trouble of its own. Just ask him to help you get through the next 12 hours. That's it. As thy days, Deuteronomy says, so shall thy strength be. Okay? This is how you avoid the so-so finish. 
You don't look out too far. You just take today. And Jesus, I need your help. Help me to stay at my post. Thank, thank you, Lord. You know my emotions are all over the map here, and you know that I'm worn out and fatigued, and I'm just tired of this and all this. And, and you know, I start and I stop, and I'm excited for a day or two, and then I'm... See, hold on to the faithfulness of God. Because we're not... See, it's not our faithfulness, it's His. So just, just stay with Him. Just stay with Him and stay at your post. This is how you avoid the so-so finish. And then we all want to finish strong. But see, that's tough because we have an enemy who wants to keep us from finishing strong. Uh, your adversary, Peter says, uh, I'm not quoting that right. Your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And we've said this before, when you get serious about Christ, the enemy gets serious about you. So you're going to get some resistance. Just count on it, okay? But when you're getting resistance, that's how you know on target. A friend of mine, his dad used to fly World War II bombers from England over to Germany. And my friend's dad said, you know, sometimes, I mean, that was from, you leave England and you're flying over Germany. What is that, five, six hours on those old B, whatever they were, 42s? And sometimes you're wondering, man, we're not there yet? I mean, how long is this going to take? Five, six, seven, eight hours? And he said, then everything would start exploding around us. That's when we knew we were on target. And then he said, hey, son, let me tell you something. When all hell starts breaking loose around you, spiritually, you know you're on target. That's a good word. You see? And it was exhausting, and it was frightening. And guys, we get shell-shocked. Um, what we're going to look at tonight is a story that we're all familiar with of a man. In fact, it was said of this guy that he was a man after God's own heart. And if you don't think that this battle is real and this battle is serious, then you've missed uh, the biographical information on David when he uh, was ambushed by the enemy. David had a great start. Um, he had a remarkable start. Um, he was uh, the youngest of eight sons. Uh, turn with me, if you would, uh, to, um, uh, where are we going? First uh, Samuel 16. The first king of Israel was uh, Saul. Saul had a great start, but it didn't last long. He immediately began, after, after an initial start, he immediately began to disobey the Lord. And this was, his, this was his fallback position, was one of, instead of trusting, he wouldn't trust. Instead of obeying, he disobeyed. And this continued and continued and continued and continued. And finally, the throne, the Spirit of God was taken from him, and, and Samuel, the prophet, was told, I want you to go and anoint a new king. And that's in 1 Samuel 16. And that's where we're going, and you've probably beaten me there. 1 Samuel 16, now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king myself uh, from among his sons. Samuel uh, said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. So, so, so Samuel didn't go. That's not what happened. 
Samuel went ahead and obeyed the Lord. <clears throat> you see? I'm, I'm just so glad these little, these little tidbits of real life are put in here. Because Saul was crazy. Saul was insane. And, and so what does Samuel say? Lord, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, well, here's how he's not going to kill you. You just do what I say. And he did it. You see? Uh, it's sort of like when in uh, Acts 9, when Saul, who was persecuting the church, was on the road to Damascus, and the Lord Jesus suddenly appeared to him. And nobody else around him could see what was going on. But the Lord Jesus appeared to him. And he was converted on the road to Damascus. And then the Lord speaks to the prophet, and he says, hey, I want you to go see this guy, Saul. And he says, well, you, you know, Lord, this guy, Saul. I mean, this guy plays hardball. <laughs> this, this guy's a killer. Yeah, I know, but go do what I say. And the guy, you know what the guy did? He obeyed. He obeyed. It's always best to obey the Lord. And you don't know how it's going to work, and you know, but just obey him. Just do what he says. So he goes to the house of Jesse, and if you read verse 7, um, actually, you start picking it up in, in verse 4. Uh, you get to verse 5. He consecrated Jesse and his sons, invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. It must be Eliab. The Lord said, no, don't look at the appearance or the height of his stature. Who was the biggest man in Israel? Saul. Do not look at the appearance or the height of a stature. I have looked and rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. It has nothing to do with, with physical size or anything like that. God's looking at the heart of a man. So all of the sons come by. You read it in 8. You read it in 9. All the sons come by. You look at verse 10. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Oh, wait a minute. There's, and then he says, Samuel said, are these all the sons, the children? He said, well, there remains the youngest, and behold, he's tending the sheep. He was told to bring all the sons, but he didn't think enough of David to even bring him in. Some of you, your, your dads didn't think enough of you to acknowledge you. David knew what that was like. They bring in David. In verse 12, 13, 14, boom. He's anoints David. David's the next king. And what's going to happen is, um, see, in, in one day, David's whole life changed. In one day. In the late 1800s, there was a, a member of parliament who was in Scotland, and he was in a rural area making his way into the capital city and in a carriage with a, a horse-drawn carriage. And as they were coming into town, just outside of town, there had been a major storm, and they hit mud and, and got stuck in the mud. And there was no way out. And the coachman and the footman and all the other guys are trying, and they can't move. It's just, they're just up to the axles. And suddenly, out of nowhere, this 15, 16-year-old kid shows up with two draft horses. Walks up, says, can I be of assistance? And in 45 minutes, they're out of there. And the member of parliament was impressed with the young man and his work ethic and just how he handled himself and thanked him and offered him money. And the young man said, oh, no, sir. Uh, 
we help our neighbors and you're in our, our area, so you're a neighbor and I can't take your money. And he was so impressed with the young man, he started talking with him. And he said, so tell me, you, your family farms nearby? Yes, I work with my father. And, and so do you aspire to be a farmer? He said, well, I'll probably stay on the farm. My heart really is to be a doctor, but we don't have the funds. And he asked him a few more questions, and this member of parliament said, young man, I'll help you become a doctor. And he actually paid his way through university and through medical school. Um, that changed that young man's life. Interestingly enough, that member of parliament, 50 years later, his son was prime minister of England during World War II. And he was at a conference meeting with the other Allied commanders, and he became sick with pneumonia. Uh, what saved his life was penicillin. Penicillin, which was discovered by Alexander Fleming, who was the young boy with the draft horses, who was funded by Winston Churchill's father, Randolph. Some say that story is apocryphal. I don't know that it is. But I will tell you this, Alexander Fleming, his life was changed in one day by an encounter with an older man. So was David with Samuel. Um, David had a tremendous start, and here's what happened. Just shortly after being anointed by Samuel, uh, his dad had him get a couple of Subway sandwiches and go see his brothers who are on a battlefield. And David goes, and uh, there's this Philistine giant by the name of Goliath that is intimidating and blaspheming the, army, the armies of Israel and the living God. And no one's doing anything. They're all intimidated. And David says, listen, I'll take that guy on. God delivered me from the lion. The lion? Yeah, it wasn't on ESPN or anything. It was done in private. You know, most spiritual battle is done in private. Am I going to trust God? Nobody's around. It's just an issue that's overwhelming. Am I going to trust God? David was given a responsibility to take care of the sheep. Here comes this lion. That was his job, so what did he do? He took care of the sheep against the lion, and God delivered him. Then there was a bear. God delivered him from the bear. And he's thinking, because he thought, he was a thinker, if God delivered me from a lion and a bear, God can deliver me from that guy. And he says, I'll take him on. Now, the biggest guy in Israel was Saul. He should have taken him on, but he was intimidated. You know what happened. David takes him on. Boom. That was it. And now there's a new number one song on iTunes in Israel. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And because of the jealousy of Saul, David's going to be on the run for the next 12, 10 to 12 years living in caves and hiding out. He won't become king, because this was probably, he was around 18, he won't become king, actually ascend the throne until he's 30. Okay. Which takes us to 2 Samuel 1. Would you turn there? Now, my point in giving you all that background is this. David had a tremendous start, and it has been pointed out that beginning with 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 10, David is now the king, and the favor of God is all over him. And you talk about coming out of the blocks. 
He never loses a battle. God, he, he is able to unite all the tribes and, and the nation becomes one. It's one victory. It's one accomplishment, one after the other, after the other for 10 straight chapters in 2 Samuel. And then you get to 2 Samuel 11 and we read this. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Should have been with his men, but he decided uh, to not go. And I will point this out again. His closest friend was Jonathan. Jonathan was dead at this point. I think if Jonathan were alive, Jonathan would have walked in there and said, what are you doing? Get out there and go to battle. No one else would talk that way to David because he was the king, but Jonathan would talk with him. We all need people in our lives. You don't need a bunch, but you need one or two who can talk straight with you, and you can talk straight with them. And you got a track record, and you got a history, and you know you die for each other, so you can say anything, and you don't lie. Uh, you look out for each other. But that guy, Jonathan, was now dead. Jonathan would have walked up there to get your tail out there. You can't talk to me like that. I'm the king. Don't give me that king crud. I was supposed to be the king. Don't play that king. Just get your stuff and let's go. And David would have gone. But there was no Jonathan. And so he's going to get in trouble. Look at verse 2. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Here we go. This is one of the great shipwrecks in all of history. Um, probably the greatest literal physical shipwreck that ever happened in history was the Titanic. This was maybe the greatest moral shipwreck among men that's ever occurred. It's certainly the most famous, David and Bathsheba. Um, we, we're, we're all familiar with the Titanic. And you've seen the movies, and you've read books, and you've read articles. Uh, the Titanic is really a remarkable story, and there are significant parallels to the shipwreck of the Titanic, to the shipwreck that can happen in the life of a man who is following Christ and attempting to run the race well, but we can so easily get shipwrecked. It happened to David. It talks about, in 1 Timothy 1, about uh, shipwrecking the faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander who shipwrecked their faith. Um, I, I want to give you a couple things, and, and a lot of you guys could, could stand up and talk for 30 minutes about the Titanic because you studied it. But I wrote something down about this, and I, I, I just want to quote it because one of the astonishing things to me about the Titanic uh, was the arrogance and the hubris. There were 2,200 people on board that ship and 20 lifeboats. 20 lifeboats, that's hubris, that's arrogance. And they came up with a phrase as this ship was being built. They came up with a marketing phrase. And they called this great ship the Titanic. They called it the ship that, anybody know? 
God, a lot of you guys know it, this is the ship that God couldn't sink. You know, you got to watch those creative types. Marketing guys can be just tremendous, but you got to be real careful on some of these deals. Because, see, you don't want to say that. Let me give you a couple facts on the Titanic, because indeed there are parallels um, to spiritual shipwrecks. On April 10th, 1912, the ship Titanic embarked on her maiden cruise from Southampton to New York. The ship was so carefully structured and engineered, it was built as a ship God couldn't sink. It was four blocks long, four city blocks long, carried the most up-to-date safety devices. Featured a French sidewalk cafe, luxurious suites, but carried only 20 lifeboats for the 2,200 passengers on board. The great ship, whose size was greater than any other, whose integrity of construction and engines and equipment were the best that money could buy, sailed the sea for only five days. Despite her grand send-off, she hit an iceberg and sank in just two hours and 40 minutes. 1,523 people lost their lives in the greatest shipwreck of modern history. But here's the point. The Titanic actually shipwrecked before it ever hit the iceberg. Now, how can that be? Let me tell you why. Because there were six warning messages that were sent by telegraph to the ship that were ignored. Now, that's what happens in the spiritual realm. This is why guys don't finish strong. One message from the ship Athenai via the ship Baltic and then passed on to the Titanic was not posted until more than five hours after it had been received. Another message at 7.30 p.m. from the Californian to the Antillian was not shown to the captain since to do so would interrupt his dinner. Another message from the ship Masaba was never taken to the bridge as the wireless operator was working alone and could not leave his equipment. The receipt of a final crucial message from the ship Californian was interrupted and never completed when Titanic's operator impatiently cut it off so that he might continue his own commercial traffic. There had even been a visual warning at 10.30 p.m. from the Rappahannock, the ship whose Morris Lamp message about the heavy field of ice directly ahead was briefly acknowledged from the Titanic's bridge. There is no evidence that this vital information was ever heeded, nor was it given to Captain Smith, who was now dozing in his quarters. That's why the Titanic shipwrecked before it ever hit the iceberg. They ignored the six clear warning signs. And, and, and David, this second Samuel 11, he's on the rooftop instead of being with his men, I don't know who said this, but I heard this years ago. You got to watch your time. As a Christian man, you got to watch your times of leisure. You got to watch your days off. When, when we're at work, when, when, when we're going about our responsibilities, when we're at our post, most of us are pretty busy and we get fatigued and we got stuff coming at us 14 different ways. And I think I mentioned this last week. You know, you got a list at the beginning of the day, five, ten things, and you knock them off, and at the end of the day, you got 15 more on top. It's just kind of nonstop. You know what that's like, and I do too. What we've got to be careful of is our time off and our leisure time. That's when you can get in trouble, you see. 
because you're just not, well, you're, you're free. And you're, you got nothing to do, and you're just kind of, and you're susceptible. Okay. Um, how is it that David set his own course? Turn with me to Deuteronomy 17, if you would. As the king of Israel, the kings of Israel were given direct orders from the Lord. And we've gone over this passage before in Deuteronomy 17. Instructions were given to the future kings of Israel. In verse 15, the king that they would put over them, uh, whom the Lord God, your God chooses, must be one from among your countrymen. You shall set his king over yourself. You may not put a foreigner over yourself who is not your countryman. 16. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself because chariots were the latest technological device and God didn't want them trusting in horses or chariots. God wanted them trusting in himself so they weren't to multiply horses. Look at 17. He shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. Now, when David was 18 and anointed to be king, he was not married. When he was 30 and became king, he had at least six wives, perhaps eight. David knew, this, David knew this full well. But you see, what David did is that David, for whatever reason, gave himself a rationalization to not obey a direct order. And every time he took a new wife... He was violating the Word of God. Now, I think we can surmise, because this happens to you and it happens to me. Have you ever started to make a decision or started to down a road of behavior, and you feel yourself as a Christian man, you feel a sense of being checked? Do you ever feel the sense of being convicted? Do you have a sense that, I don't think this is right? Sure you have. I am telling you that happened to David. Every single time that he took another wife, he was violating Deuteronomy 17, 17. Um, F.B. Meyer has written this. In direct violation of the law of Moses, David took more concubines and wives. You know, concubines... What were concubines? Any of you guys have concubines? I don't think so. Um, concubines were just sort of the, uh, well, they were just sort of the playthings. They weren't wives. They were just real nice-looking girls and uh, that you could mess around with, you see. Well, not only was, the, I mean, it was real clear the king wasn't, to multiply wives. So he sure as heck wasn't to have concubines. But David had wives and he had concubines. Every time that happened, I'm telling you, the Spirit of God checked him. Okay. Listen to this. In direct violation, this is F.B. Meyer, the law of Moses, he took more concubines than wives, fostering in him a habit of sensual indulgence, which predisposed him to the evil invitation of that evening hour. 
Did you catch that? It was significant. I'm not surprised we had a distraction. I'm going to read it again. In direct violation of the law of Moses, he took more concubines and wives, fostering in him a habit of sensual indulgence, which predisposed him to the evil invitation of that evening hour. In other words, when he saw Bathsheba on that on her rooftop, she didn't know he was looking. By the way, you know, these great shipwrecks in history, whenever there's a shipwreck, and I'm going to state the obvious here, whenever there's a shipwreck, you get wet. David is going to have a shipwreck, but it's going to be a dry shipwreck because he doesn't get wet, but he's going to shipwreck by watching her get wet. You see. She's going to step into her bath, and he's up there on the hill watching from his rooftop. Um, eventually, um, by his eight wives, David had all these kids. And then he had the concubines. David had 21 sons and daughters. He had even more children by his concubines. To put it plainly, by ignoring God's command to be a one-woman man, David had one very large, messed-up family, and he would live to regret it. The crack in David's armor was polygamy. God said, don't do it, and he did it. He excused himself. He gave himself a hall pass. And what happened is, that night, when he saw Bathsheba, because he had developed habits of rationalizing and minimizing the conviction of the Holy Spirit, when the conviction no doubt occurred as he saw her, he just did what he normally would do, and he just ignored it, and he was already predisposed. Point being, he was shipwrecked before he ever brought her in and slept with her that night. Do you see how the enemy is, uh, Joel Aldrich once said, the enemy will wait 40 years to spring a trap. You see, this is why we have to guard our hearts. You got to watch yourself. First Timothy four sixteen, watch your life and your doctrine. How many ministers have we seen who are in preeminent positions, and it comes out they've had ongoing sexual affairs for years and years and years? They watch their doctrine. They never got off doctrine. Doctrine. They never watch their life. They never watch their heart. They never watch the inner man. They were living a lie, you see. But you can be sure, the Scripture says, your sin will find you out. There are three observations that we can make about uh, shipwrecks. Let's think about physical, nautical shipwrecks. Here's number one. A shipwreck can take you, number one, farther than you wanted to go, Number two, it can keep you longer than you wanted to stay. Number three, it will cost you more than you wanted to pay. Um, so on the Titanic, a shipwreck will take you farther than you wanted to go. Uh, Edward Smith was the captain of the Titanic. He was 59 years old. The Titanic was to be his last voyage, and then he was going to retire. He was in great health. He had a great pension. He already had a place picked out with his family. This was his very last voyage, and then he was going to retire. 
All he was going to do was sail to New York, and that was it. But you see, the thing about a shipwreck, it can take you farther than you wanted to go, about 13,000 feet farther. Uh, a shipwreck can uh, keep you longer than you wanted to stay. Just a short voyage, relatively speaking. Turned out to be an eternal voyage. The entrance into eternity. What's the third observation? It can cost you more than you wanted to pay. Some of the wealthiest people in all of England and America were on that ship. And they paid high, high, high dollar. Now, let's talk about the moral, spiritual shipwrecks. Same thing is true. Um, they can take you farther than you wanted to go. What was in David's mind that night? Let's talk about it for a minute, because this is what gets in our mind. You guys still with me? Okay. You guys ever deal with sexual temptation? Yeah. Well, we have one liar over here that said no. <laughs> and the rest of us are compliant because we have, yeah, hey, we all, of course, sexual temptation, it never goes away. It never goes away. I, I remember Chuck talking about hearing, was it Chuck or Dr. Hendricks? I think it was Chuck who said he remembers hearing uh, Louis Spiri Chafer, the founder of uh, Dallas Seminary, talking in a classroom one day, and he was in his late 70s, 80s. And someone asked him a question, and he talked about uh, the issue of sexual temptation in his life. And they were all kind of shocked. You know, he's such a godly man. Well, he's a man. Well, he wrote a theology. He wrote a systematic theology. Well, he's a man. We're all just men. That doesn't go away when you hit a certain decade. I, I remember years ago, and I think it was in Indiana at a Bob Evans restaurant. I remember it. I think it was, at, I know it was Bob Evans, and I think it was in Indiana. And uh, I like Bob Evans, and I like their navy bean soup. It's good stuff. I go in there and get three or four gallons at a time. It's just good soup. And I'm there for breakfast one morning. I'm at a conference doing something. I went by there to get some eggs and something. And, uh, you know, I'm just eating breakfast. I got a paper. I got to leave in a few minutes. And there's a guy probably in his late, I, I, actually he had to be 80, maybe 85. He's sitting over there in a booth and everybody knew him. I mean, he was obviously, he was just a guy that was there every day. Hey, Joe, how you doing? Hey, Joe, all the waitress. Hey, Joe, how you, the manager? Hey, Joe, everybody, it was Joe. And he's right over there about, uh, I don't know, 20 feet away from me. And I'm eating my breakfast and this waitress and, you know, nice looking gal, 40-ish, walks by, starts to pour the coffee, pours it, and then as she turns away, he grabs her by the arm and pulls her down and kisses her full on the lips. It was shocking. And she spilled the coffee and said, Joe, Joe, I mean much. The manager comes over. The guy made himself look like an absolute, total fool. Now, how long had he been thinking about that? How long had he been casing that woman? And pondering that. How long had he been mulling that over in his mind? I, I, my thought is that wasn't on impulse. He'd been thinking about it for quite a while. 
and they threw him out. Manager said, don't ever come back here again. So here's David. He's on the, uh, he's on the rooftop. He sees Bathsheba. Uh, what's the first principle? Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. How far did David want to go? Well, what he wanted, he saw her. She was good looking. He's thinking, I'll just get her in the sheets tonight. He's thinking, short term, I'm going to take that hill. That was his plan, short term. This is what this is what immature men do. This is what young men do. And this is why we have to teach our sons to think about the long-term consequences of any decision that you make. And usually, most of us have to learn. I, I mean, I don't know anybody who learns this the easy way. We got we to get burned, and we got to mess up, and we got to hurt ourselves and hurt other people. And as we get older, we finally thinking, you know what? What are going to be the consequences of this? I've been impulsive before. See, what you got to do, you can't think short-term. you got to think long-term because this act is going to take you farther than you want to go. What David wanted was to get that chick in the sheets that night, and that was pretty much it. But what happens is, if you read what's going on back there in 2 Samuel, what happens is she sends a note to him, and she says, I'm pregnant. Well, he wasn't banking on that. And the problem is she's married to one of his chief military guys, Uriah, who, where's Uriah? Oh, he's off in battle where he ought to be. So now David's got to figure out how to handle this. So he gets Uriah back, and he says, you know, give me a report. And Uriah gives him a report. And you go home and enjoy the night with your wife. And then the next morning he finds out Uriah didn't sleep with his wife because Uriah had something called character. There's a novel concept for a leader. He had character, and Uriah said, well, I, my guys are out on the field with, by themselves, and they can't sleep with their wives. I'm not sleeping with my wife. Shoot. So now he's got to have him back for dinner, and he's got to put in some wine. It's got a little more horsepower. And uh, let's send him back home tonight, and now he'll sleep with her. And then I, I'm, no, he wouldn't sleep with her. So now he's got to send him back, and he sends a note to Joab, says, put him on the heat of the battle, and so he's going to get killed. Trust me on this. And he was, and he was killed. So David is now a murderer. See, sin will, what will it do? It will take you farther than you want to go. But we're not thinking. Here's the second trait. It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. So what was David looking for? He's looking for just a maybe three, four hours, five hours, six hours, get her out of there before dawn. He's thinking one night stand. So now in order to cover his tracks, he's got to get Uriah murdered. This is going on a lot longer than one night. He's got to get Uriah murdered. He gets Uriah murdered, and then after a certain period of time, he steps up and marries the woman. Oh, what a wonderful king. Oh, what a beneficial, what, what a, it makes him look good. He marries her, and for a year, he lives a lie. Covering up the sin, but he's married her, and uh, is going to provide for the child, you see. Then Nathan the prophet walks in and says, you know, David, i got to run something by you. We have this guy out here, and he's got thousands upon thousands, thousands of sheep. But what he did was, this, this guy that just, had just nothing, just a little poor man, had this one little lamb, 
And this guy with all the sheep came and stole the guy's sheep. David comes out of the throne and says, who is that? Who is that guy? And Nathan says, you're the guy. After covering it for a year. And then the baby's born, and then the baby dies. Sin will also cost you more than you wanted to pay, because for the rest of his life, there are consequences that accrue in the David's life because of that one night's action that turned him not only to an adulterer, but to a murderer. Later, um, one of his sons rapes his half-sister. Can you imagine such a thing? One of the other brothers then waits for his opportunity and then kills that brother. You see, blood never left David's household. Then one of his boys almost stole the kingdom from him, Absalom. And then later, before Solomon takes the throne, another boy tried to steal the throne. It was just one big, rotten mess because sin will cost you more than you wanted to pay. Um, now, I'm telling you with this many guys in here, there's at least one guy in here, and you're somewhere in this process. And, and I, I don't know who you would be, but you know. You don't want to play with this. I don't know how far deep you are into this, but you need to stop and repent and turn around. You need to get right with the Lord, and you need to cut this off. Don't let it go any further. You say, I don't think I can do that. You need to confess your sin. Well, someone's going to find out about it. Well, let me tell you something. Your sin will find you out one way. Isn't it better that you confess it and repent and turn? This, this is hard because we, we get sucked into things. We get ambushed. Uh, and, and some of you guys have been there. You've experienced this. But you know what's amazing? This is the amazing thing about the Lord. I don't know why I shut my Bible, because I'm going to go to Psalm 19. Where am I going? I'm going to Psalm 103. I want to show you something. See, there is not a one of us who ought to finish strong, because we're all sinners, and we're all sinners saved by grace. And what's, what's astonishing, and, and this has been hard for some of you guys, I, I hope, here's what I hope. I hope we all take it as a warning, because... You see, the enemy still works like this, and he still tries to cloud our judgment and cloud our discernment, and he tries to make us look at the short term instead of the long term. I've had guys, Christian guys, say to me the most ridiculous things, guys who have left their wives for some young chick, trying to rationalize it. Well, she really understands me. 
Really? How long have you known her? Three weeks. And they're straight-faced. They mean it. I've never had a connection like this in my life. I can see why. This is stupid. You're 50 what? She's 20 what? You can't handle her. She doesn't understand you, Grandpa. Come on, you're not thinking. No, she understands me. She doesn't understand you. If she understood you like your wife, she'd have nothing to do with you. She doesn't know you. And you're not thinking straight either because your biggest problem is not your wife or your ex-wife. Your biggest problem is you. And you're taking you into this new relationship. If you could go into this new relationship without you, you might have a shot. But not with you. See, I'm my biggest problem, and you're your biggest problem. Uh, some guys in here have taken this road that David took. Now, you know, here was, here's what's wild. <laughs> because of the goodness and mercy of Christ, as outlined for us in Psalm 103, you know what the facts are? You can still finish strong. Psalm 103, verse 10. Actually, pick up eight. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. I never get tired of reading these verses. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. When David came clean, you might write on your notes, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Those are the two psalms of repentance of David. David came clean. It wasn't a false repentance. It wasn't a, um, um, a news conference repentance. Uh, it was a genuine, heartfelt, godly sorrow repentance. You've heard people say they're repentant, but you can tell they're not because there's no heart in it. But you have seen people who are repentant and broken, and they despise their sin and what they have done. That's a godly sorrow. That's the real thing. Thomas Watson used to say that genuine repentance is the vomiting of the soul. It is the dry heaves of the soul. You, if you, you, you vomit it up. You loathe what you have done. You detest it. That's repentance. And a broken and contrite spirit, he does not despise. And what does he do when he sees genuine repentance? Look at this. He does not deal with us according to our sins. That's unbelievable. Is it not? He should, but he doesn't. So for, uh, what is it? He, he hasn't rewarded us according to our iniquities. He should, but he doesn't, because that sin was placed on Christ, and Christ paid it. Twelve, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Gosh, the gospel, the gospel is, is the greatest news in all the world. I have a friend who went down the path of David. Guy, Christian leader, church, the whole thing. Christian wife, kids, Awana, summer camps, the whole, th I mean, the whole, this guy's into it. Knew all the verses to all the hymns. And he falls for this gal, moves out of the house, is going to marry her.
And then the Spirit of God started working on him and would not leave him alone. The hound of heaven went after him. And he went through hell. And I've watched this guy. I watched him go through the steps of genuine repentance. I've watched him restore his marriage. I've watched him restore relationships with his kids. They wanted nothing to do with him. And now they're very close to him, and they trust him because he has done the hard work of repentance. And he's not rationalized or minimized this guy this guy's done the work in terms of reconciling and restoring and walking away from his old life and having to develop new habits and I was talking with him recently and he was telling me that a guy that he you know has a business relationship he recently had a point with the guy and the guy showed up and he didn't seem like himself he seemed distracted he seemed I mean, this, this guy was out of sorts. So my friend called the guy and invited him to lunch and just took him out to lunch and just started, you know, saying, hey, how, how, are you, how are you doing? And basically said, you know, I, the reason I'm asking is you just seemed not quite yourself the other day. And this guy started opening up and telling my friend about where he was in life and walking away from his wife and kids and going after this gal and how he lives in an apartment now by himself at night all by himself and uh, and he starts just pouring out his heart to my friend and my friend says and you feel this way and this way and this way and this way he says, yeah, yeah, how do you know? Well, I used to live in that apartment by myself. Yeah, I did exactly what you did. What, what I find interesting is the guy who went down that path has been brought back. And this is just one example. And now he sees the symptoms in the lives of other men and he actually is on the lookout to try and help and assist. I think in Galatians, is it 6, 1 or 2? It's one of those. Brethren, if any of you are, in, if any of you are caught in any trespass, let those who are spiritual restore such one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too may be tempted. At the end of James, if you save a brother from sin, you save him from death. And we know what this guy does? Because this guy walked that road and was restored by the power of Christ. He now has a ministry, you guys, because he sees the symptoms in other guys that other guys wouldn't even see. Is that not wild? He's got a ministry to guys that go down the road of adultery. He's being used in a greater way in his life than he's ever been used before. And it's real and it's genuine. I'm telling you, he's finishing strong. This is the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. 
We are all sinners. We all have shame. We all have stuff we wish we could X out and we can't. So Jesus did it for us and enables us to get back in the race and by his power and mercy and grace, we can actually finish strong even after a shipwreck of monumental proportions. Jesus paid it all. So we thank you, Father, for what Jesus has done. I pray for the guy that perhaps is right in the middle of making a decision that will destroy what he has. Do not let him sleep tonight until he gets on his knees and confesses and repents and vomits this up before you and confesses it to someone he can trust and gets some help from believers around him that are trustworthy. Save that individual tonight. Save them, restore them, and begin the work to bring them back. Get them in the race again by your grace and mercy and work in such a way that they'll be a trophy of grace and finish strong. To your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.